Good morning, everybody. I managed to uh, spill tea all over myself a few minutes ago, so um, if you're wondering why there are stains on my clothes, that would be why. <laughs> I have a trouble with the lids on these coffee cups for some reason. Um, but my name is Jason Brown, and I have been filling in uh, last week and this week for Kyle. And this morning, we're going to be picking up in the book of Nahum, um, finishing out chapter 3. Um, if you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, I believe it's page 783 on the, the Bible under the chair in front of you, or you can look it up in your own, use the table of contents if you need to, um, and we'll get to that in a minute. While you turn there, I want to kind of give you a roadmap for this morning. A lot of times when people hear Nahum, they either don't know what you're talking about or they think that it just presents a really one-sided view of God as vengeful and wrathful. I hope to show you this morning that the book of Nahum does not provide just a one-sided view of God that's commonly associated with it. Um, some of the confusion comes from poetry. The book of Nahum is poetry and it can be confusing and it can be hard to translate. But we're going to dig into it a little bit this morning, and we will see that God not only is more than just wrath and vengeance, but he's also um, directing his wrath at a particular group of people, or, and that uh, in that he is rescuing the average citizens in Nineveh in hopes that they would follow in the message of Jonah and find him. Then we'll look at, then who is God setting these people free from? And what is the object of his wrath? And we'll spend most of our morning looking at God's power over the spiritual forces that are at work in Nineveh. In chapter 1, we saw that God takes sin seriously. Chapter 2, last week, we saw that God has the power to deal with sin. And in chapter 3 this week, we're going to look at God who saves his people from the enemy and has the power not just over sin, but over the spiritual forces. So if you would, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll be in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 19, which is the whole chapter. <clears throat> and it's, it's a little bit graphic. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel. Galloping horses and bounding chariot. Horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear. Hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Graceful and of deadly charms who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink away and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for her? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile? with water around her, her rampart a sea, and water her wall. Cush was her strength, and Egypt too, and that without limit. Put and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile, 
She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. Her honored men, for her honored men, were, lots were cast, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding. You will seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege, strengthen your forts, go into the clay, tread the mortar, take hold of the brick mold. There will the fire devour you, the sword will cut you off. I will devour you like the locust, multiply yourselves like the locust, multiply like the grasshopper. You increase your merchants more than the stars of heavens. The locusts spread its wings and fly away. Your princes are like grasshoppers, your scribes like a cloud of locusts settling on fences in a, in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away. No one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing of your hurt. Your wound is grievous, and all who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your, increase, your unceasing evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Whoa. We start chapter 3 with a section in verses 1 through 3, an accounting of woe. It's an accounting of the sins of Nineveh, the bloody city. Assyria had terrorized the ancient Near East for a long time. They'd used their chariots for lightning-fast brutality, and it allowed them to brutally conquer and subjugate most of the world. Spanning down into Africa, from the Red Sea over to the Persian Gulf, and up around the Mediterranean Sea, and nearly up to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And what's more, is the Assyrian Empire was at their height during their current king, King Ashurbanipal. Assyria kept extensive records. Um, when Nineveh was discovered, the ruins of it, in the 1800s, they found extensive libraries. And scholars of these texts that they found agree that the most violent king Assyria ever produced was King Ashurbanipal. They say that he put vindictiveness on display, and malice was a driving force for him. His accounts are filled with graphic detail of torture and humiliation of conquered nations. I will spare you the details, uh, but to relate to our passage, a brief quote from one of his um, accounts of victory, he says, The wheels of my chariot, which brings war and brings low the wicked and evil, were bespattered with blood and filth. With bodies of warriors, I filled the plain like grass. He goes on to describe the tearing out and uh, cutting off of particular body parts and putting livestock rings through, through and dog collars around the fallen leaders. Ashurbanipal's Assyria had systematized brutal warfare on a scale that had never been seen before. What we see here in verses 1 through 3 they record the victims of Assyria. This is not a record of what's happening during the fall of Nineveh. 
Nineveh had become the capital of Assyria about a century before, and as a part of that, they had become the heart of the Assyrian bloodlust. Nineveh was the bloody city. So far in the the book of Nahum, we've seen this pronouncement of sin in chapter 1 and this coming judgment in chapter 2. We've seen that God listed his motives in chapter 2 to restore the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. And here we see this accounting of Assyrian sin um, that earned the wrath that they were going to receive. But verse 4 gives us a unique perspective. It tells us the motives of Assyria. What they were doing, it says they were doing it all for the countless whorings of the prostitute. Is all this really in order to procure services from a prostitute? Like, what does it mean? What is he saying here? Maybe he's talking about, like, Nineveh as a prostitute. But that gets a little bit confusing because Assyria conquered. They didn't need to sell themselves like a prostitute. They didn't need allure or enchantment of those they conquered. But maybe we ask ourselves, what is being meant here by the prostitute? You see in other Old Testament stories that the term prostitute may mean a little bit more than just our modern notion of someone on a street corner or the red light district, uh, perhaps including other roles within the industry. It says that the prostitute is graceful and of deadly charms. That she betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms. We read charms here in the ESV and think of a charming person. And she is using her charms to seduce. Um, but what it's really talking about is like a magic charm. Um, often translated as sorceries or witchcraft here. Um, and in other places. So we have these whorings and sorceries which interestingly, we see this combination elsewhere. In 2 Kings chapter 9, we find the story of Jehu, the new king of Israel, going out to meet and kill Joram, who's the current king of Israel, and King Ahaziah of Judah. Verse 22 says, And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? The story of Jezebel helps put some shape to this prostitute in Nahum. Jezebel was a foreigner who had married the northern kingdom of Israel's king Ahab. The problem with her was that she brought her foreign god to Israel. She tried to kill all of God's prophets and led Israel in Baal worship, worship of this foreign god. So in light of Jezebel, who led, a nation, who led the nation of Israel into this um, idolatry, what can we see in Nahum? It says that she betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms or sorceries. So maybe we're talking about something a little bit bigger scale than your local street corner. To betray here has this idea of like selling and enslaving, not just tricking. The idea of tricking someone in this case, a nation, into slavery. But what kind of enslavement are we talking about? We've talked about this a little bit in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that Assyria would often, um, when they were marching out to war against somebody, 
the nations would say, hey, we don't want to fight you because we know that we will lose. So instead, we will become your subject. We will become a vassal state. Um, sometimes this would happen if they tried to fight and they had to surrender. Other times this would happen if a country um, feared another enemy and they said, hey, Assyria, we will become your subject if you'll protect us from this other country over here. And because of the extensive records that were kept by the Assyrians, many of these agreements still exist today. And when you look at them, the problem, this betrayal, this trick and enslavement, we see that these, these uh, agreements were covenantal. They involved not just pledging loyalty to the Assyrian kings, but to adopting and worshiping the Assyrian gods. And it's believed that at this time, in Nahum's context, that King Manasseh had re-entered into one of these agreements with Assyria in order to get protection from Syria. Nahum here is accusing Nineveh of spiritual prostitution. Idolatry in the Bible is often described as committing adultery against God. Nineveh here is guilty of leading Judah into adultery with foreign gods, just like Jezebel did. Guilty of running a spiritual brothel, if you will, of making others sell themselves, offering up their riches and their independence in order to solicit the Assyrian rulers and to offer up their worship to the Assyrian gods to receive the payment of protection and not being obliterated. And so too, like in our modern prostitution, we see that it's often fed by human trafficking and slavery that you really can't leave. The curses and consequences for breaking these coerced agreements meant certain death. It was inescapable, or Assyria would come and destroy you. This is truly a betrayal indeed, a sneaky enslavement to these foreign gods. And if that's not enough, then they would take slaves from these nations that would be part of the payment, and they would be forced to build temples for these gods, and then go fight wars on behalf of these gods. Sort of forced spiritual adultery, if you will. But God's covenant for his people means that he will avenge himself on the rivals for his bride. They took advantage of Judah's dire circumstance, and they forced them into adultery with foreign gods. And God would not stand for this, and we see in the book of Nahum that his wrath will be poured out. In verse 5 through 7, we see that God is dealing not just with the city of Nineveh. After all, the prophecy of the downfall of Nineveh has already happened in chapter 2. But he's also dealing with, using the adultery illustration, he's dealing with the other man. Or in this case, he's dealing with the other God the one behind the prostitution, who's taking advantage of and enjoying the services and the worship of God's people. This is the prostitute of verse 4, and she is being exposed in verse 5. We didn't really talk about this last week, but we mentioned it in chapter 1. In this section of verses 9 through 15, there's a series of um, adversaries that are introduced. The pronouns get confusing and a little bit lost in translation, but there's a singular feminine, a singular masculine, a plural masculine. And here, we appear to be seeing what he's doing and how he's dealing with this singular feminine um, character. 
Nineveh, they'd only been the capital of Assyria for about 100 years. And when it became the capital, it became the power center for the Assyrian war god, Asher. He was like the over-god that was on top of the Assyrian pantheon by far. But within this pantheon, you see that it is full of all these other Mesopotamian, Babylonian, ancient Near East gods. And historically, Nineveh was dedicated to the goddess Ishtar, a fertility god of love and war. It was her city. Nineveh was basically synonymous with Ishtar. Her association, in fact, is part of why Nineveh became the capital of Assyria. When King Sennacherib chose Nineveh, he records that Nineveh, the exalted cult center, a city loved by the goddess Ishtar, in which all the rituals of gods and goddesses are present. He goes on to describe Nineveh as having a destiny written in the stars since time immemorial, a sophisticated place full of secrets and sorceries. It sounds like a really good place to make your capital. Clearly, there is something alluring about this Ishtar and her city. Ishtar, the goddess of the city. Ishtar, the goddess of fertility. The female adversary introduced in chapter 1. Ishtar, the great prostitute. The Jezebel of Nineveh with her whorings and her charms. Verse 5 and 6 present a graphic picture. God, in his wrath, is lifting up a woman's skirt for people to look at her nakedness and treat her with contempt, making her a spectacle. If we don't do the work to properly identify who the prostitute is in verse 4, this can be a problematic and very difficult passage. In recent years, liberal scholars have looked at this passage and suggested that it's describing God doing very uh, inappropriate things. And they're denouncing God, saying, how could this be a good God? As if he is giving license to his image bearers to do the same. If they're angry, they can do this. But that is absolutely not what is happening here. That is never okay. And that is contrary to who God is. Verse 7 tells us that the response to this exposure is that all who look at her will shrink away. This is not the picture of Babylonian invaders having their way with the lady of the city or the temple prostitutes, um, where you would expect the response to be more positive. The stripping of the woman in this case causes repulsion, not lust, in the hearts of onlookers. This is about Ishtar and God's power and victory over her. In the culture of Nineveh, Ishtar's naked body portrayed, uh, played a crucial role in her cult. Ishtar, as the goddess of fertility, was so frequently portrayed artistically and literarily as this naked body that, as Assyriologist Julian Reedy puts it, almost any Assyrian representation of a largely naked woman was liable to be seen as some representation of Ishtar. This woman here would be seen as Ishtar. Her naked body was said to have supernatural powers. Her body was central to her cult. Another Assyriologist, Julia Asante, says, the goddess's body and her literally spellbinding sexuality were important instruments 
of old Mesopotamian and Babylonian household magic. These were her charms and her sorceries. This lifting up of the erotic facade was a cultural desecration of the goddess, goddess Ishtar before her subjects. God is uncovering her allure and showing her for what she really is. You would expect in this case sensuality, or perhaps her sorceries would come in and save the people of Nineveh, but Nahum instead paints a macabre scene, revealing that she has no power before the one true God. She is a false God that enslaves, and the nations now see her for what she is. God has made her a spectacle of shame. This scene follows the tradition of Jezebel from 2 Kings chapter 9, which records her end. Jehu came to Jezebel to take care of her, and it records that she painted her eyes and adorned her head. And then when Jehu gets there, he looks up to the wall and he says, who is on my side? A couple of guys look at him, they're like, yeah, we're with you. We don't like her. So they throw her down to, the, to her death. And what follows that, we'll spare the details, but another very graphic scene where basically her body is dismembered by dogs, um, for reference. See, in the story of Jezebel, we again see that this alluring exterior facade is presented. In this case, it's not a naked body, but it's painted eyes and an adorned head. This facade is broken down in a shameful, graphic spectacle, in her case, to which no body was even left. And it was foretold by God's prophet. Elisha had said that this would happen to Jezebel. She's exposed, and her power has been leading God's people into idolatry is defeated. We see this again in the book of Revelation in chapter 17, which talks about the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, in the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, she's drunk on the blood of the saints. It goes on to say that she too has an alluring exterior. This woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of the abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. She too leads nations astray. The angel explains to John that the waters that he saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. She too meets her end at the, her, her end at the hands of an enemy who is draped in red, uh, just like we saw in chapter 2 of Nahum, in this case a scarlet beast, and she meets her end in a way that uncovers her alluring exterior, and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked, and devour her flesh, and burn her up with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. She too was synonymous with a city. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And this too has been foretold by God. And this too is a sure promise that she will be defeated. 
Nahum 8, uh, verses 8 through 10, go on to declare that Nineveh and Ishtar will not stand when God is against them by comparing them to the great city of Thebes, um, this power center in the Egypt area. Thebes had fallen about 50 years or so before Nineveh, which is kind of what helps us date the book of Nahum. It's somewhere in this window between Thebes and uh, Nineveh falling. Thebes historically was a great city, more grand, better fortified, and with a more illustrious history than Nineveh. It was protected from Assyria by deserts and seas and the Nile River, but it still fell. But what we see here is that Nahum is also comparing their deities. The translation that you have may say, or at least a footnote, uh, like in the ESV, where it says Thebes, the footnote says, no Ammon. Nahum didn't use the common name for Thebes here, but he called it by the name of its deity. He says, this is the city of Ammon, the great and powerful creator god of Egypt. It was protected with his immense power, but it couldn't stand. Are you better than Thebes? The same word here for better is used in graceful in verse 4. Um, it's also beautiful. Are you better? Are you more graceful? Are you more beautiful? Is your prostitute more beautiful than Ammon? When your beauty is gone, so is your power of seduction. Thebes was well protected. Nineveh sat open in the plains of Mesopotamia, and they had no grounds for their boasting. Their confidence in the flesh and their material state was inferior compared to Thebes. Their God has been exposed, and as verse 7 mentions, they had no friends, no allies, and only subjects who were ready to revolt. Thebes had all of this, and it could not stand against God. Verse 11, we see it presents a similar picture to what we saw in chapter 1, verse 8. It says that he will make a complete end of the adversaries and pursue the enemies into darkness. Again, we see the enemy here is going into hiding. Pursuing the enemy into darkness was likely an allusion to a prominent Assyrian myth about Ishtar, one which was survived and we still have record of today. Darkness in mythology was synonymous with the underworld. And deities, these Mesopotamian gods, they couldn't travel between the land of the living and the underworld, except the unique exception of Ishtar. In this myth, she is uniquely able to travel and cross that boundary to retrieve her lover from the darkness. God is saying throughout Nahum <clears throat> that even if the city's goddess tries to flee, I will pursue her even into darkness and hell. There is no escaping, there is no refuge outside of the one true God. We have seen this demise of the singular feminine adversary, this goddess Ishtar, that was introduced in chapter 1. But before we go on, I want to skip to, chapter, to verses 18 and 19 and address the demise of the singular male adversary. Identified here as the king of Assyria, who has a grievous wound and whose evil has spread over all. Chapter 1, verse 14 also spoke of his demise, that his name and his idols would be cut off and that God was making his grave. 
Reading this as the king of Assyria at the time would have been Ashurbanipal. Um, he was a really bad guy, so it's like, okay, we need to deal with him. But that creates two problems. One, Assyrian kings, unlike Pharaoh's, they were not considered divine. Um, they would not have idols made of them to be cut off. And second, Assyrian kings themselves were considered shepherds, as we see here in verse 18. They were shepherds to gather the people for their god, Asher. In Assyrian ideology, the, term, the title king and shepherd were interchangeable. As a shepherd, the king was elevated above his people, the sheep, but humbled before his god. This is why it's a problem in chapter 2 that the shepherd has now become a lion because he is devouring his sheep. But the king of Assyria that we see here also reads in the original language as King Asher. The overgod of the Assyrian kings and princes, um, King Asher. You see that his princes and his nobles are sleeping and that his subjects have been scattered. His unceasing evil has come upon all the world. It is a universal evil. It is his yoke that has been broken, his line that dies out in chapter 1, and his futility that tries to protect the city, and he is the one who has to watch as the city is destroyed in chapter 2. And he is the one who suffers a mortal blow that will not heal um, and cannot be eased. We see that the most severe judgment has been directed at these false gods in the book of Nahum. False gods that have been leading people into idolatry. But what about the average citizen? We assume that they too met a bloody fate, right? The third group introduced in chapter 1, this plural masculine adversary is associated with the warrior, the young lions, and the sleeping princes. These are the people in whom the people had put their trust. This group, they're not really described in a graphic detail of shameful, bloody defeat outside of maybe chapter 2, talking about the red on the, the shields and armor of the Babylonian invaders. But as we saw last week, that's likely just a color identifying the invaders as Babylon. So here in chapter 3, we see that the warriors, they're scared. The princes are fleeing and the nobles are sleeping. In fact, other than the slave girls in chapter 2 and the warriors, we don't see mention of the common citizen until we get all the way to chapter 3, verse 16, where we get a list of merchants, princes, scribes, shepherds, nobles, and people. A list that covers residents from slaves all the way up to the aristocratic elites. <clears throat> and here... We see, just like in other Old Testament passages, God destroys each and every one of them in his wrath. Except that's not the picture that's presented here. It is in other parts of the Old Testament, and there's no doubt that many did perish in the fall of the city. But the main point here is that God's judgment is primarily directed against the spiritual forces that are at work in the city not the average citizen. The slaves and the warriors are scared. The shepherds and the nobles are asleep. They're sleeping through the danger. The merchants flee like locusts, and so did the princes and the scribes. The people 
are scattered, but not destroyed. God could easily have destroyed all of the people. But in his compassion, his Nahum, if you will, remember Nahum means compassion, um, it is extended to the people. Chapter 2, verse 8 says that Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away, none turn back. It was not just Judah and Israel that were captive to the whorings of the sorceress, the whorings and the sorceries of Ishtar, or the violence and the appetite of Asher. So too were the Ninevites. Could it be that, like in the story of Jezebel when Jehu arrived and he asks, Who is on my side? Those people who were trapped and enslaved by Jezebel gladly threw her down to her death? Could it be that Babylon rolls up to Nineveh and says, Who is on my side? And the warriors that are manning the ramparts and the city gates open the river gates, as chapter 2 talks about. They delivered defeat to the oppressive Ishtar and Asher. And we don't know if that happened or not. That'd be really cool. Um, but what we do see is that Nahum is presenting a picture where fear and fleeing was the state of the average citizen. And defeat was the fate of the spiritual forces that had been enslaving people in idolatry. Now you may be like, well, what about the slave girls in chapter 2? Weren't they lamenting and moaning? Doesn't that sound like somebody that's sad and distraught? Not someone that's been set free from oppression? We didn't really spend any time in chapter 2, verse 7 last week, knowing that we would look back at it this week and see that the mistress who is stripped and carried off is the goddess Ishtar. She has been exposed and deposed. The original Hebrew that's crafted in these words could be translated either positively or negatively. Makes it really hard to translate into English. Um, Nahum's poetic brilliance, I believe, is done intentionally so that it can express both the distress of the residents as the city falls and the spiritual joy of those who have been set free to worship God. You see here a um, couple different words that tie the book of Nahum to the story of Abigail and Nabal, the fool. The fool is used in verse 4 um, to, to describe the prostitute, and the handmaid that's used in chapter 2 um, is used to describe Abigail over and over again. And I'll spare the details of the story for the sake of time, but what you see in this story is that God destroys a fool to rescue a handmaid. Their crying and lament could also mean singing for joy. It could go either way. The word that's translated as beating in other places is only used in one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 68, where it is used in reference to playing a tambourine in worship before God. And perhaps most intriguingly from chapter 2, verse 7, is that dove also appears as a proper name in Hebrew and in the Bible. That name is Jonah. So what you see here, putting some context and understanding behind this, you could say that it's presenting this as the handmaids who have been rescued from their mistress, the fool, and are singing with joy as with the voice of Jonah, beating their hearts as tambourines before the Lord. That sounds like somebody's happy 
and excited and joyous to be free. The prophet Isaiah talks about in chapter 19, he prophesies the destruction of Egypt and her gods. But also in that, a coming day when Egypt will rightly worship the Lord and they will cry to him and he will send a savior to defend them and deliver them. Isaiah also prophesies later on in chapter 19 that in that day, Assyria and Egypt will worship together. And together with Israel, they will be a blessing in the midst of the earth whom the Lord of hosts has blessed. The Assyrians will be redeemed and worship the Lord. God is not destroying them. He's their salvation. He is destroying the spiritual enemy so that they may find him as they did at the message of Jonah. They may repent, and as Jonah says in chapter 3, verse 8, turn from their evil ways, turn from their violence, and turn to God. In our context, we can kind of feel disconnected from these spiritual enemies and things working around us. All right, when's the last time any of you went to the local Ishtar temple for worship? No? No hands? Okay. Um, how about the last time you got out your Asher idol and polished it up to take into battle with you or for prayer time? Thankfully, I don't see any hands. That's good. Nahum and most of the Old Testament prophets, they're proclaiming this woe in the face of idolatry usually to sinful nations uh, that are threatening Israel or to the people of Israel for turning their back against God. But in the New Testament, we see that Jesus also proclaims woe, not to the sinful nations threatening Israel or to Israel for um, chasing idolatry, but to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day. See, we can be thankful that we live in this modern era that has freedom, and we have freedom to worship God gathered together on a Sunday morning. But we would be naive hypocrites, just like the scribes and Pharisees, if we think that we are somehow safer than our brothers and sisters who are in places like India, North Korea, or Iran, and face state persecution. We are just as much a target of the enemy as they are. But they are in a place where their circumstances are equipping them. They know their weakness. They know the dangers they face. Sometimes we don't. But in reality, we face dangers that are far more insidious or at least as much as the blatant state persecution that they face. Revelation 18, in talking about the, the goods that the, the great prostitute would deal in, goes on to describe that it's not just sexual immorality. These goods include gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves, that is human souls things that we look to as modern luxuries, or some of those we would say are modern necessities, right? I need my cinnamon. We desperately need God to deliver us from our intoxication with these charms. We live in a culture that is 
addicted to pleasure and luxury and that is surrounded by seductive, uh, by seductive society. We rightly thank God for our freedom to worship Him, but how often do we cry out in prayer for God to deliver us from the seductive power at work in our culture that leads us to think that we need Jesus and a good job, Jesus and a nice house, Jesus and recognition from those around us, Jesus and an easy life, Jesus and the right politicians, Jesus and the brand name, Jesus and whatever it is that is taking your eyes off of him, we need deliverance from that. Matthew and Luke, they both just record that the men of Nineveh, of all places, will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is greater. He's greater than all the luxuries in our culture, all the allure of the enemy. We've seen it in Nahum, in 2 Kings, and in Revelation, and we desperately need it here. God's gracious gift is that he would uncover the alluring exterior of our culture and force us to comprehend the truly horrific nature of what we have sold ourselves to. Oftentimes, we either ignore that Satan has any power or we attribute everything to him and ignore our own sin. Nahum makes it clear that God differentiates between sin and the enemy that is luring us to it. Both incur God's wrath and are dealt with. But chapter 1 reminds us in the case of our sin that God is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. We saw last week that he will destroy the physical strongholds of sin. But he doesn't stop there. We see this week that God will rescue his people from the spiritual hold of the enemy as well. The beginning of the book of Nahum introduces the theological theme, Nahum of Elkosh. Nahum means compassion, Elkosh, God is severe. God's severe compassion is what we've been seeing throughout this book. His compassion is severe when it is required to bring about the ways of his glory and turn his people back from idolatry in any form, in any age. A severe compassion acts when people stray towards destruction. A severe compassion deals with destructive influences. A severe compassion is good as a stronghold in the day of trouble, and it knows those who take refuge in him but with an overwhelming flood will make a complete end of the adversaries. We know one who is better and more beautiful than Thebes, than Ammon, than Ishtar, than Baal, than Babylon, than Asher, than Satan. One who was bound voluntarily to a cross. One who pursued the adversary into darkness to grievously wound him and then rose again to life on the third day to deal the death blow to our spiritual adversary and rescue his people. The contrast between Jesus' redemption and the appetite and consumption of the Assyrian prostitute, it could not be starker. Throughout chapter 3, you see multiple allusions in the, the mythology to hell. The way of the prostitute is death and hell. 
The way of Jesus is salvation and life. Similar to verse 19, all who hear the good news, this gospel of Jesus' victory and salvation, they clap their hands over the defeat of the adversary, upon whom has not come his unceasing evil. We have all felt sin. We have all felt the effects of sin around us. And those of us who are sinners that have been redeemed and justified by the grace of Christ as a gift, redeemed from the slavery and the sin of idolatry, may we hear that good news and respond appropriately, clap our hands and worship and join the great multitude in heaven crying out in Revelation 19 at the destruction of the great prostitute. It says, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Amen! Hallelujah! Praise our God, all you servants who fear him small and great. Amen. At this time, we're going to move into a time of the supper where we will have an opportunity to remember the work that God has done to redeem us and set us free from sin and from the evil forces at work.